Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the lives and ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. This week we find ourselves in a fascinating portion of God's Word in 2 Kings chapter 5. Remember, beloved, remember these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Aram is the same thing as Syria. This morning I've printed for you the NIV. It reads a little easier, so this morning we'll be in the NIV. Aram and Syria are the same thing. This Naaman, he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said, by all means go. The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read as follows. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman, he went away angry and said, I thought he would surely have come out to me, and he would stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, Aren't they better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. But Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he simply tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored 
and became clean like that of a young boy. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a little trivia question for all of you. Who here has ever heard of a false flag operation? Who here has ever heard the terminology, a false flag attack? Just a few of you, not many. I had certainly never heard of it before Russia invaded the Ukraine back in February. It was all over the news. News reporters were commentating that Russia was about to engage with the Ukraine based on false flag operations, had absolutely no idea what that meant. So if you learn nothing else today, you're going to learn what a false flag operation is. A false flag operation is where a nation performs an operation against itself. A nation attacks itself under the guise as it being from another nation to give itself an excuse or the pretense to declare war on another nation. Clear as mud, so an example, for example, like Russia would claim that they had been cyber attacked or maybe even attacked themselves in a minor way with a cyber attack and they blamed it on the Ukraine to give them an excuse to invade the Ukraine. Now this terminology comes back from the days of the pirates when they would fly false flags. They would fly friendly flags to lure in merchant ships so that they could raid them and plunder them, hence the name false flag operation. That is what the king of Israel thought the king of Syria was doing to him. The king of Israel thought the king of Syria was engaging in a false flag operation. The king of Israel thought the king of Syria was asking him to do the impossible so that when the king of Israel couldn't do it, it would give him an excuse to go to war. Here's the thing, friends. That fact explains everything that was wrong in Israel. Okay? Israel's king did not trust the Lord to do what? Israel's king did not have faith that the God of Israel could do the impossible. That was the problem with the king of Israel. That's the problem with the people of Israel as a whole. By this time, they had totally lost faith in the God of Israel that he could do something like this. And the author highlights this lack of faith in this incredibly fascinating passage. The author highlights this lack of faith by demonstrating great faith in two extremely unlikely people. He highlights the great lack of faith by the king of Israel and by the Israelites by highlighting the incredible amount of faith by two of the most unlikely of people. The first of which is this young Jewish girl that had been kidnapped. Let's look at her just briefly. The most unlikely person to demonstrate a robust faith in the God of Israel, once you think about it. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is in your bulletin. Now, 
bands of raiders from Aram. Okay, that's Syria. Look at your handy-dandy map, the map insert, okay? You can orient yourself, the middle of the map, that's the Jordan River to the west. That's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. To the east of the Jordan, you see Syria to the northeast, okay? If you look in the far right corner, you see Damascus, that's the capital of Syria. You see the two rivers that Naaman mentions, the Abana River, the Farpar River. That's where Naaman is going to be coming from. That's where the raids would come from. The raids would come from the northeast, and they would come to the southwest, and you can see that little line. The Syrians would come in and raid Israel. Okay, so that's, you've oriented yourself with the map. Go back to the scripture text. Now, bands of raiders, okay, these weren't the Boy Scouts coming from Syria, okay? Now, bands of raiders from Aram or Syria, they had gone out and they had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And what did she do? She served Naaman's wife. Now, ultimately, we learn from the text, who is ultimately responsible or presiding over these raids. Who was the commanding general of Syria? Naaman. So whether or not he directly oversaw the kidnapping of this girl, he was in charge of these raiding parties. God had given him, of all people, victory in his various exploits. Verse 2, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, friends, to me, this is shocking. This is amazing. Because consider the context that this girl was living out her life. She had been kidnapped and it's highly probable that she had been on the receiving end of a brutal kidnapping. Now, for historical reference, I've, I've told you about a book before called Empire of the Summer Moon that chronicles the Comanche Empire of the 19th century. And the centerpiece of that book is the life of a young girl who was kidnapped in Texas in the early... 1800s named Cynthia Ann Parker. And she was kidnapped at eight years old and taken to live with the Comanche Nation. And she was completely assimilated into their culture. And she was rescued years later and really didn't want to go back to her European settler way of life. She wanted to stay with the Comanche because she had been totally assimilated later in her life. But what the book does is that it gives you insight into the brutality of these Comanche raids. Because oftentimes when they would come in, they would utterly wipe out entire families, entire settlements, and they would take young girls as prisoners and assimilate them into their culture. Now these Syrian folks, what were they called in the text? Syrian ambassadors, what kind of people were they called? They were called raiders. These were Syrian raiders. And in order to get this young girl, they had probably 
brutally murdered her family and taken her back to Syria. And yet she did not flinch. She did not hesitate to tell her master where true help could be found. There is a prophet of God in Israel. I don't know about you, but I think that is tremendous faith on the part of this young Jewish slave girl who despite her circumstances continued to abide in her trust and faith and belief in the God of Israel. If that were me, what would this kidnapping have done? That might have falsified my belief in the God of Israel. Okay, the God who wasn't able to protect me and save me and keep me from being kidnapped. What kind of God was this? What good was he at the end of the day? I would have been tempted to go down that road. Not this little girl. This little girl continued in her belief in the God of Israel. I think that is stunning. And I promise you that would have leapt off the page to the original readers of this. Trivia question, who were the original readers of 1st and 2nd Kings? We've talked about this week after week. Who was reading this book for the first time? It was the exiles in Babylon who were preparing to return a people who had been taken into captivity because they had lost faith in the God of Israel. If this little girl, in the midst of circumstances, quite frankly, we cannot imagine, if she kept her faith in Yahweh God Almighty, how much more should these exiles, as they return, trust in the God of Israel, and they were going to come back to incredibly difficult circumstances? She knew exactly who she could go to. Also, wouldn't you agree that this was a risk on her part? Now, we find out later in the text that when Naaman gets offended, he almost leaves and goes home. I would argue this was a great risk on the part of this young Jewish girl. I mean, what if it didn't work? What if Elisha wouldn't receive him? How do you think that would go for the little girl when Naaman got home? Incredible faith in the God of Israel. She took a tremendous risk in making this recommendation. Also, a quick little FYI on leprosy in the Bible. When you read the word leprosy in Scripture, that's kind of a catch-all term. And it's really a term that could refer to really any kind of skin disease, anything ranging from Hansen's disease. Now, when you think of leprosy, when I think of leprosy, when we read in the Bible, oftentimes we're thinking of something called Hansen's disease, which was a bacterial skin infection where patches of your skin would grow white and your nerves would die and you would get open sores and infections and it was awful. It could also refer anything down to like basic skin psoriasis. Oftentimes, they could not tell the difference. Now, what would happen to you if you were deemed to have leprosy or a kind of skin infection? Many of these were very contagious. What would happen to you? What would you be declared? What's the term? Unclean. Again, it's hard for us to relate to this. If you were viewed as having leprosy, you were viewed as unclean, and that carried with it tremendous social stigma. So it's clear both Naaman and the king, that's his master in the text, viewed this leprosy at a minimum of being a threat to his 
being a great general in Syria, it was probably a threat to his life. That's why they were willing to pay this great price to get him treated. Trust me, you did not want leprosy in the Old Testament. To say that you would be shunned and on the outskirts of society would be a huge understatement. So this, this precious Jewish girl, at great risk to herself, showed tremendous faith in Yahweh and told her master about the only place that could bring him help. Because they knew it was incurable. You better believe that the king of Syria and Naaman had exhausted every holistic healing source they could find in Syria to no avail. This was the end of the road. This was their last resort. This precious Jewish slave girl, hero number one, her incredible faith. Unlikely person number two is Naaman the Syrian general himself, who did not start with faith, but buddy, I can tell you by the end, he ended with it. Let's look at verses four through six. So Naaman, he hears about this from this little Jewish slave girl. Naaman went to his master. That's the king, obviously, in the context. His master is the king. He's like the second in command, Naaman is. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. Now, this is interesting. If you read before this and you read after this, Israel and Syria are constantly at war. So there would have been a lot of tension in the background of this text. It's very interesting that the king of Syria would even make this petition. And it's not at all surprising that the king of Israel felt like this was a veiled threat. This is a false flag operation. This guy is just trying to create an excuse to invade me. Verse 5, by all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him. Now, this would have been a vast amount of money in the ancient Near East. With this, with this relatively small nation state in the ancient Near East, the king of Syria is just dumping like a major truckload of wealth and riches into Naaman's hand saying, take it. It's like he was opening up Fort Knox in their context. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, I think over 700 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. In that context, this would have been extravagant clothing, worth a great deal. I think in modern coinage, it would be over $2 million for an ancient Near Eastern city-state to send this kind of money for him to receive treatment indicates to the reader how valuable Naaman was to the Syrians. Verse 6, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read as follows, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy, which is a shock. I mean, when the king of Israel reads this, which is obviously an indicator of his incredible lack of faith, he almost has a heart attack. He thinks this is a sure pretense for war. What is going on? Everybody knows leprosy is incurable. This is impossible. Verse 7, as the king of Israel, as soon as he read the letter, 
he tore his clothes. In the ancient Near East, this was a form of, of mourning and anxiety, even protest. Like, what's happening here? He said, am I God? What is this guy asking of me? Is, is it within my power to kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a fight with me? This is a pretense for war. I say to you again, a huge indictment on the faith or lack thereof of the king of Israel. It does not even occur to him to pray. It does not even occur to him to take this to a prophet of God. Does not even enter his mind. Remember, at this point, he has personally borne witness to the fact that God's presence and power abides in Elisha. He's already seen it. He's already borne witness to it. But he won't go there. Won't go there at all. Thankfully, however, Elisha hears about it and comes to the king's rescue once again. Verses 8 through 10. I think this is very exciting. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, like how did he hear about this? Did he hear about this because he's a prophet of God? Because he had people there, kind of spies in the kingdom? We don't know exactly. Kind of interesting to speculate. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent him this message, quote, what are you doing? Why have you torn your robes? Have the man, this man Naaman, come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, which is a way of saying he will know that there is a God in Israel and that he is alive and well. Verse 9, so Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, this very impressive military retinue that's with him. And he drives up and parks at Elisha's door. So he stops at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. In other words, you will be healed physically, you'll be declared clean ritually. In the context of scripture, what was leprosy a metaphor for? Of what was leprosy a metaphor of? Really sin. And how contagious and destructive and deadly and rotting the pervasive nature of sin is. And so this was a graphic, physical, tangible reminder of sin and how it made you unclean in the sight of God. Okay? And to be cleansed was a metaphor for forgiveness and cleansing and purification. Okay? Naaman, however, he is, he is upset about this. He doesn't like this. Okay, look at verses 11 and 12. He doesn't appreciate Elisha's response. Verse 11. But Naaman, he's confused. He went away angry. And he said... I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God. Now, this is kind of humorous if you understand. Like, I thought, I thought he would come out and, like, at least put on a little show, a little song and dance and wave his hand over the spot and, 
do kind of impressive things. You know, that's what I was expecting that he would do, that he would call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the spot and through those means cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, you can see that on the top right of your map where they are, they were more impressive rivers, by the way. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, aren't they better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off, so he turned and went off in a rage. Why did he do this? He thought he was being blown off. Now, it's true that this was an expression of, of Naaman's pride. I do agree with that. But I think if we understood the honor-shame context of the ancient Near East, like this, was, this really was insulting in this context. If a general in the ancient Near East arrives in some kind of official capacity, he expects to be greeted by someone of similar rank from someone on the other side. This was standard operating procedure in the ancient Near East. It was inconceivable for someone of Naaman's stature and prominence to not even be greeted at the door by someone he perceived to be his social equal in Israel. This was incredibly offensive to Naaman. He thought he was being totally blown off this is a result of this honor-shame culture in which they lived. Now, people over the years have talked about the difference between giving offense and taking offense, and the two are not always equal. Sometimes we can offend someone by our discourteous speech, okay, or being insensitive. Other times, people can be overly, ins overly sensitive and take offense when none is intended. I think that's what's going on here. I don't think Elisha is intending to give offense to Naaman. Why do I think this? I don't think he was trying to teach Naaman a lesson necessarily about humility. If you go back just a little bit and the, the Shunammite woman is coming because her son has died and she's coming to meet Elisha does Elisha go out to meet her directly? No. He, he sends Gehazi, his messenger, to meet her. Like, and so when, when her son needs to be healed and raised, does Elisha go himself? No, initially, he sends his servant. Gehazi, this is kind of Elisha's way. He was saying to him, go to the Jordan, dip seven times, you'll be healed. What kind of place was the Jordan River within Israel's worldview? It was a place of great significance. It was the place over which you crossed to go into the promised land. This was something wonderful that he was asking Naaman to go, in a sense, be baptized in the Jordan. But Naaman, he didn't take it that way. Thankfully, though, Naaman had servants and counselors there to help him. You can just picture this in your mind's eye. He's upset, he's offended, he feels like he's being blown off, he's getting in his chariot, he's getting ready to go back, you know, and the servants are like, um, sir, master, your eminent Syrian governorship, whatever they would call him, can we just think about this? If he had asked you to go get 
dragon's root at the top of Mount Everest or something like that, you would have thought, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I'll do that. But he's asking you to do something simple. Something very simple. Go here, dip, and be cleansed. Go do it. Go do it. It's easy. Okay, the way of salvation is easy and clear. Does that sound familiar to you? To be baptized into somebody? Simple and clear? Be cleansed and experience forgiveness? Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. Verses 13 and 14, Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to, to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you washed and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, this, this, this number of completion and this beautiful, you know, in, from their perspective, this wonderful Jordan River, as the man of God had told him. He did it. And what happened? His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, I agree with Sinclair Ferguson on this. He makes a great observation. When he came out of that water, seventh time, and his flesh was restored to that of a young boy, of a child, it's like his flesh was what? Made new or born again. This is like a picture of cleansing and forgiveness and purification as he comes out of this water, essentially born again, forgiven, made right. Naaman understood exactly what had happened, and his response makes sense. Verses 15 and 16. He's not trying to buy his salvation here. He can't express enough how grateful he is for what has happened. Look at verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. I'm sorry, you got to go to panel five. I should have told you that. If you're a visitor, this is more common than our people like. You got to go to panel five to get the rest of the story. Go to panel five. All will be well. Second Kings chapter five, verse 15. The rest of the story. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God. I want you to understand, friends, this was profound in the polytheistic culture of the ancient Near East. People did not say this kind of thing outside of Israel. Israel was the only monotheistic culture in the history of the world. Look at what this Syrian general said. Look at his confession of faith. Now I know. There is no God in all the world except in Israel. That is incredible. So please accept a gift from your servant. But of course, Elisha knew the truth about grace. What is grace, friends? Grace is free. Grace is lavish. The grace of God in Christ Jesus is free. All you need is your need. All you need to do is recognize your need of the blood of Jesus Christ, and you too will be clean. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Amazing. The prophet answered in verse 16, As surely as the Lord lives whom I served, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him to do so, he refused. You can't buy it. You can't pay for it. 
All you have to do to get it is to know you need it and come to the Lord Jesus Christ and experience life transformation like you cannot fathom. This is the free gift of God to someone who did not deserve it. Someone who was responsible for the slavery of that Jewish girl. The worst of the worst is receiving the free grace of God. Now, Naaman does something very interesting, unique in a sense in the Old Testament, and this is how we're going to land the plane here. I argue, I think, this would have been very informative and convicting to the original reader, to these exiles who are reading this and preparing to return. Look at how the story ends. It has a very enigmatic ending. Verse 17, if you will not, he's saying, if you want to accept my gift, said Naaman, well, please let me take something. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. Notice this, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. I want you to remember that. I want you to underline that. I want you to know that. That would have been seared into the consciousness of the exile reading this. Look at verses 18 and 19. He's going out of his way to make, to, to make sure what he's about to do is okay and properly understood by this God that he now worships and trusts and loves. Verse 18 but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, meaning in his official capacity, he's second in command, he's got to go with the king when the king of Syria goes to worship in his own temple in Damascus, okay? Naaman understands he's going back home. He's going to live in a very pagan culture. He has jobs and duties there. He's serving at the leisure and discretion of the God of Syria, I mean, of the king of Syria. He knows he's going to have to do some things when he goes back. Verse 18, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down and he's leaning on my arm, he's like on my arm, he's older, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for doing this. In other words, because my heart's with the Lord. My heart's with the God of Israel. How does Elisha respond? It's kind of shocking to us. What is the Hebrew? Shalom. Go in peace. The Lord knows exactly what's going on. Go in peace. I'm going to beg you to do something. Do not get distracted by that fact. That is not the ultimate point here. Do not get distracted. Do not, do not, do not about what he has to do in his official capacity when he goes home. That's not the point. The point here is how much he values the God of Israel. He values the God of Israel and Israel's place. He values the God of Israel and the place of Israel and the promised land so much that he wants to take the promised land back with him. What's he gonna do with that dirt? He's probably gonna build an altar to Yahweh in his home, in Syria, so that he could worship the only God that there is, the God of Israel. Where were the exiles when they were reading this? Where were they? They were outside the land of promise. 
They were outside the land of promise because they had not valued the land of promise. They had taken the God of Israel and the land of promise for granted, and they had been disciplined and taken into Israel. I mean, sorry, into, into Babylon. Here's the point, and I'm going to land the plane here. If this Jewish servant girl who had been kidnapped had this kind of faith in Yahweh, if Naaman, the Syrian general, had come to have this kind of faith in Yahweh that he wanted to take the promised land with him, value the God of Israel and the place he's given you. That's the point to the exiles. You're about to go home. You're about to be able to worship again with your people. Value it. What's the take home to us? Value Christ in your place. Value the privilege that you and I have of being a part of a worshiping community. Yes, the Holy Spirit, he's everywhere in the new covenant. He's everywhere with God's people. He indwells us individually as God's people. But I'll tell you this, there's a very special place in God's economy for the local church, for the worshiping place of the people of God. That's what we're doing here this morning. This is something that can't be replicated the rest of the week. Think of how much Naaman valued worshiping God in the promised land. He made an altar to God out of promised land dirt. We should, we should want to be here where we are, worshiping the God of the Bible in Christ Jesus and the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness that we receive in him, we should long to be here more than anywhere else throughout the week. We should count it as our greatest privilege and joy to be with each other. We have biological blood family. We have this family. And in some ways, this family is even more profound as we worship the God of the Bible in the Lord Jesus and experience and taste and know and being built up in his grace. What a privilege. That's what we get to do week after week. So we should be thinking about that this week. I should be thinking about this this week. How much do I value this place? This place of worship and grace in Jesus. How much do I value that? How much am I committed to seeing Jesus Christ lifted up high and holy in this place? Beloved, I hope it's my greatest priority of all, and I hope it's yours as well. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we don't have the time to mine the Christ-centered riches of this text. Father, may we be like Naaman. May we value the grace of God in Christ Jesus more than anything else in this world. May we value the privilege that we have to gather together in this place as the worshiping community of God, loving, rejoicing in, communing in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his matchless name we pray, amen.